if we're successful, we help the next billion people get energy services in a sustainable way. And we use that example to inspire those of us who already use energy in unsustainable ways to modify our practices. Welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. I'm your host, Tony Noto, with my co-host, Lex Kiefhaber. How you doing, Lex? I'm doing well, Tony. How are you? I'm doing great. It is Earth Week. Couldn't be better. Absolutely. We are so excited for Earth Week, Earth Day. This is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. So 1970 was the first Earth Day. And at that time, 20 million people came out and supported it, which I believe was a tenth of the population. And in honor of Earth Day, we have a special episode for you this week, a conversation with Jackie Osfeld, who is the director for the Outdoors for All program at the Sierra Club. That episode will drop tomorrow to celebrate Earth Day. But for now, as always, we bring you the story of an entrepreneur creating the technologies and products today that can save our world for tomorrow. One of those people is Jonathan Cedar, our guest today. Jonathan is the CEO of BioLite a company he founded 10 years ago to address a problem that most of us in the developed world never even really have to consider, but causes millions of unnecessary deaths a year in communities without things we take for granted, like a power grid to light our homes and charge our electronics and cook our food. Globally, 3 billion people cook over an open fire, and that's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a pit that has a fire in it powered by wood or charcoal. Now, to put in perspective just how harmful that is, having an open fire in your kitchen is equivalent to burning 400 cigarettes an hour in your kitchen. So Jonathan set out to solve this problem, and he did that by creating a wood-burning stove that is 95% more efficient. It burns clean, so it doesn't expose families to smoke inhalation, which can lead to cancer and heart attack and death. And he created this stove with a and he'll talk more about this, but a power converter in it that allows people to charge their cell phone or light a home with the thing that they are using to cook their food. It was a whirlwind of a conversation. It was very complex. Um, he's a he's a very much a science guy. He's very smart. Uh, I tried my best to keep up. He's way, way more brilliant than I am, uh, or even that I imagine myself to be. What more can I say? He's a, he's a smart, he's a smart cat. It's really a privilege to be able to bring this conversation to you on Earth Week because he's truly doing something to support our global well-being. Clean energy, advanced technology, lighting up the world without creating waste. With no more further ado, here we go. Our conversation with Jonathan Cedar. Sure. Um, Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, So BioLite is a personal scale energy company helping people access all of the functionality of the on-grid world off the grid. And broadly speaking, we service two customers. We say people who go off the grid by choice to sort of recharge themselves. So campers and hikers and backyard adventurers. Um, uh, And then we service a group of customers who live off the grid by circumstance. So mostly families, mostly smallholder farmers in developing countries in Africa. And uh, honestly, the technologies that both of those customers need are very similar. They need the ways to heat their food and feed themselves off the grid. They need ways to see what they're doing at night. They need ways to keep um, important connectivity devices like mobile phones charged. And, And so what we find is we've got 
two very different customers, but they really shared reliance on uh, off-grid energy. And so what we've done is we've built a company that can invest deeply into those core technologies that help cook, charge, and light life beyond the grid. But then we turn them into products that are um, uniquely suited to the needs of each of those customers individually. So for example, the flagship product that launched the company is a stove that burns wood instead of gas, and it uses a technology called thermoelectrics to turn some of the heat from that fire into electricity. The fan that that electricity powers can gasify the wood and make that wood burn as cleanly as gas, and then extra electricity can charge your mobile phone. And for campers, they want a small, you know, water bottle sized version of that that fits in a backpack. For folks who, you know, are using this for a family of six, seven, eight people cooking every day, they want something that's sturdy and can hold large pots and use larger pieces of wood. So the technology that drives them is the same, but the way that users interact with them is very different. And so that's really sort of a, a good embodiment of the core principles of the business. And ultimately, you know, we see ourselves as having a huge opportunity to essentially invent the way that the next 1 billion people will consume energy on this planet. We know that energy is central to some of the basic functions in life that keep us safe and connected and comfortable and productive. And we want everyone to have access to that. So one is about creating technologies that are affordable and accessible. But the other piece is that we know the way we used the way we use energy in the developed world is really unsustainable, where it's based on um, non-renewable fossil fuels. And we know that that will really limit our existence on this planet at some point. And so how can we also take the work that we do to build a belief in renewables and that you can live a really high quality, high function life based on renewables? Um, and so I would say that, you know, if we're successful, we help the next billion people get energy services in a sustainable way. And we use that example to inspire those of us who already use energy in unsustainable ways to modify our practices. All right, fantastic. Um, we always have this thing where we, we ask generally the same question to start off, like, who are you, what do you do? And every, uh, the, the CEOs and the founders have this wonderfully robust and dense answer <laughs> that we're always like, okay, let's go back to the start now and yeah, like unpack, <laughs> unpack that. Yeah. So I think, um, doing a little bit of research about this, uh, learning about what the status quo is for these people that are living off the grid. Can you just tell us, like, paint the picture, right? You said a family of six or seven. What are they doing without this technology or without this product? Yeah, for sure. So I, I'll paint a picture of a very typical customer for us. So our typical customer is a smallholder farmer, meaning they subsistence farm a plot of land that's roughly one acre or less. They might earn. Um, so the, the national poverty line in Kenya is $3.10 a day, um, and about 65% of our customers live below the national poverty line. So we're talking about people who make uh, roughly $1,000 a year, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and yet these people are spending about a third of their income um, on purchasing rudimentary energy. So they cook their meals over wood or charcoal. They are buying kerosene for lighting. They are, um, everyone owns a cell phone. Most households have multiple cell phones. Increasingly, most households have smartphones. You can now buy a smartphone in Kenya for $25 cash. Wow. But between buying charcoal, buying kerosene, maybe buying batteries for either a flashlight or a radio and paying someone in town to charge your mobile phone, you're spending a 
about $300 a year, which is incredible, right? We don't spend nearly that fraction of our income as Americans on energy services. I mean, especially if you take your car out of the picture, you know, we spend maybe 1% of our income purchasing electricity and gas. And so I think the starting point to really understand is that people are consuming energy, they're just doing it in really inefficient, really expensive, and unfortunately also really polluting ways. What we aim to do is uh, take advantage of solar, LEDs, lithium ion batteries, you know, big advancements in technology that are very inexpensive to deliver people energy at a much higher function, but much lower cost than what they're purchasing today. We read that 4 million people a year die from lung disease, cancer, and stroke in these kind of situations caused directly from these open fires in a confined space. Yeah, yeah. About half the planet still cooks their meals over smoky open fires, um, as I was saying, sort of over wood or charcoal. And when right. you burn wood and charcoal, um, it produces, in, in an unimproved stove, um, or just in an open fire, like a campfire on the ground, um, it produces a huge amount of smoke and carbon monoxide. And we know a lot about things that produce smoke and carbon monoxide because we have done massive amounts of research, not us, right, but the global health community has done right. massive amounts of research about cigarettes. And we know all the diseases that cigarettes cause. The average exposures for families who are cooking on open fires is about, is very similar to smoking about two packs of cigarettes a day. That's right? crazy. And so... And there's no other option, right? They have to and do no this. there's no other option, to, mostly yeah. to cook food, yeah. It's a, it's a terrible health burden, and yet pitifully small amount of investment from the global health community has gone towards developing the technologies for advanced clean cooking for these households. So probably less than 1% of the dollars that have gone into malaria research, probably less than 0.1% of the dollars that have gone into HIV research. And I'm not saying that malaria and HIV don't deserve every dollar and more that they've received in research. But here we have a public health crisis that has been so unaddressed because people just see it as tradition, right? Well, that's how families cook. They cook on open fires. And whereas for us, we really see this as a technology problem. There's a, there's a technology gap here to improve those fires. And that, that's what we've set about doing as a business. How did the journey take you to Kenya? So when we started, I mean, look, first of all, uh, you know, I'm an engineer from New York. I started this in 2006 and did not know anything about the fact that half the planet was cooking on open wood fires. And my, Are you from New York originally? Yeah, I am. Cool. Um, myself and my co-founder were tinkering with the idea of making an advanced wood-burning camping stove because we're both avid campers. And it was really just a night and weekend project. And at some point, we got seriousness, serious enough about it that we took our little prototype to a conference in Seattle on advanced wood combustion and really just accidentally stumbled into what actually turned out to be a conference on, you know, the the, the health crisis of open fire cooking, right? So it wasn't just clean combustion for the sake of clean combustion. It was clean combustion because 4 million people a year were dying from bad combustion. And it was just this life-changing moment for us. We were like, oh my God, I had no idea a problem like this existed. And here we are as engineers working on really discretionary problems. Like we need to, we've been given a tremendous gift with our education and resources. How do we try and point that towards some, some much larger problems? And, and so, you know, that's where the journey started. And this was 2000, started working on prototypes in 2006, went to this conference in 2008. And from there, it was like, okay, I need to do this. I got sponsored into a social impact incubator in India by the first venture fund we went and pitched uh, to try and build this company. And they said, hey, look, 
you don't know enough about your business yet to be taking venture capital, but you guys are working on a really important problem and we want to help support you to at least get educated enough to do this work well. And so they sponsored me into an incubator in India. I went in, uh, to India for about a year to understand this customer. I didn't know how they cooked. I didn't know how much money they made. I didn't know how they got access to products in their life. And, you know, India was also the single largest concentration of open fire cooks, right? There were um, about 850 million open fire uh, cooking people in India. And there's a similar number in Africa, but dispersed across 30 countries. And so we started in India and spent the first five years once we were funded working in India and learned a huge amount, but found that there were some major challenges, probably the largest of which was maybe two things. One is that people who were cooking on open fires were mostly cooking on collected sort of agricultural wastes. And so the cost of fuel was very low. So the, you know, the economic opportunity wasn't, wasn't very strong. And at the same time, the government for people who were slightly wealthier was subsidizing um, LPG canisters, liquefied petroleum gas, so like propane tanks. Okay. And so every time you'd go through an election cycle, the government would flood the market with free propane huh. and any kind of demand for buying a paid solution like ours would disappear. Interesting. And in 2016, when India went through demonetization, which was the shift of cash currency that took place in India, our ability to sell product completely evaporated. So we just we just felt like we banged our head against the wall for five years in India. Um, and we made some progress and we learned a lot. And, you know, some few tens of thousands of people were able to be helped from our stoves, but we just were moving very slowly um, because of the market conditions. And we'd had a couple of pilots running in East Africa, initially in Uganda and later in Kenya, where one, the governments were just a lot more friendly towards these kinds of activities. There weren't um, strange subsidies taking place. And also most cooks in Africa, at least in urban areas, are cooking on charcoal, which is very expensive. Yeah. Um, and so for them, there was a really strong economic incentive in addition to the health incentive to be switching towards a more fuel efficient, lower emissions product. Um, and Why so, charcoal and not wood? Because- Forestation in, systems and, and such? Um, well, no, charcoal is actually much more de devastating from a deforestation standpoint. It takes 10 pounds of wood to make one pound of charcoal. Uh, so no, the environmental hazard of charcoal is worse than wood. But what you have is you have a little bit more urban life in, in Africa where it's easier to transport charcoal into a city than wood just because it's, much, it's a much denser, lighter fuel. Um, and so that's really driven the economics across Africa that, you know, a lot of people cook on charcoal. And, and quite frankly, if I had the choice of cooking, cooking on charcoal or wood in an open fire, I would definitely choose charcoal. Yeah. But it's expensive and it's really environmentally damaging. Yeah. So, so, so that's why we've seen a lot more success in Africa is just the opportunity cost of investing in a product like ours is a lot more favorable. You said, you mentioned before this moment when you're like here is the thing that I am going to go do. This like, ah, eureka moment. You take us back there and be like, what was that like to be like, to see this path forward, not knowing where it's going to take you, but knowing that like, this is the direction that you were going to go. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I think back on that period of time a lot. And obviously that conference was a real eye opener for me because I just didn't know that half the planet was cooking on open fires and that, you know, 
that same group of people had no access to electricity. I think the no access to electricity was less surprising than the open fire cooking, but um, it just wasn't on my radar, right? Like I was busy as a product developer making ergonomic potato peelers and better video cameras and things that are great, like things that I use, things that I enjoy, things that have a lot of value, but things that life would go on if they didn't get improved every six right. months. And and so I think, you know, one was the eye opener of, of just recognizing that there's a big problem. But I think the other piece was that my skill set was so needed for a problem like this, um, yeah. that so few people were dedicating their focus to these problems. And so I think it was more of a moral aha than a technological aha, which was, I can take the thing I love doing, which is making things and the skills that have been invested in me by my family, by society, by the fact that I am lucky enough to have grown up in America with access to education and, and, and try to try to share the wealth of that um, by working on some problems for people who didn't necessarily have those resources. That was the moral aha. And, and, and I have to say the, the process of going from the holy shit, this is a big problem to I'm going to do the work was I think on the one hand, it was more gradual. And on the other hand, I don't feel like I questioned it very much. It just every step felt more exciting than the next about how much impact I could potentially have and what a what a fascinating problem it was, right? Both not just technologically, but economically, socially, environmentally. Um, it just it just lit up so many synapses in my brain for things that I really cared about that um, I can't say it was a super rational decision. It just, it felt right. And one foot went in front of the other every single day in that direction. Yeah. That's great though, right? Like sometimes when you find that purposefulness, you, you chase the, the, like you said, the feeling, the intuition, that like this feels like the right combination of who I am and what problem yeah. I identify. Yeah. It propels I, you I, forward. I would add one other thing to that, which I had a great, I had a great mentor. I worked for a design firm called Smart Design and the COO of Smart Design said something to me that really stuck in my brain, which was, hey, look, you're a great engineer. And if this doesn't work, you can go back to being a great engineer. So like, what, like, this is not as risky as I think some would think to quit your job and go try something new. Because at least for me at that stage in my career, I was 29 or 30. Um, I had an established skill set. And so, you know, I didn't necessarily have a lot of cash, but I certainly had a trade I could fall back on if I fell flat on my face. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a very trained bartender and that used to be a super safe thing to have to fall back on. Yeah. But for the last two weeks, um, <laughs> let's, I want to ask then about that engineering thing. The, yeah. <clears throat> sorry, not, not to, de, not to diminish it, not the engineering thing, the, the yeah, moment, the, the, yeah. the, what is, what is, if you could say this in a way for someone who does not know, two things about engineering except for you know like what's out of the battery to put in the remote control what is the the technological leap forward that this stove was able to uh encapsulate and, and to some degrees like miniaturize and then also make at scale so that it could be a profitable consumer product yeah sure so so maybe maybe i'm just gonna start with like a quick piece of science on this because i think that's uh, a good way to understand why this was necessary so if you saw a car driving down the street with smoke coming out of the tailpipe, you would say to yourself, that's a badly tuned car. Um, and when you see a fire, even if it's burning wood, with smoke coming out of it, the answer is the same. That's a badly tuned fire. And a well-tuned fire 
can very easily be, or not, maybe not very easily, but can be extremely low emissions like a modern automobile. But what was needed was the engine that you have to put around that. And large scale combustion systems like power plants have gotten very good at reducing emissions. Automobiles have gotten very good. No one's worked very much on how do you do this at a small scale personal cooking fire level. And so really what we did was we built the engine and, and one of the key technologies that was missing for the engine is you need something to help mix the fuel, which is the gasified wood with the oxygen that's next to it, right? And that's a, that's a process that requires some external energy to really help drive that mixing. And so the best way to do that is with a fan that blows in and kind of swirls all the stuff together so that the oxygen and the fuel mix really well and can com fully combust. But to power a fan, we needed some electricity. And so the question was, how do you get a little bit of electricity? And we looked at the system and said, well, you've got 5,000 watts of thermal energy. We need one watt of electrical energy. What's a really good converter for that? And, and so what we did was we just figured out how you can apply this existing technology in a way that is durable and cost effective to an open fire. And that's really what unlocked the ability to power these fans that could in turn reduce emissions. So let's talk a little bit about, we had this eureka moment where both like the personal realization, this is what you want to do, and also the engineering background to actually do the thing. Now you have to make it into a business. How yeah. do you take this and say, all right, we've got this, this product that has this amazing use case, but can a developing country market be able to generate the capital needed in order to yep. make this a profitable enterprise? That is a crux problem that we had to solve to start, but honestly, it's a crux problem we solve every day still, right? We, we work in challenging markets for low-income people. Um, and particularly in 2009, when I quit my job to start this, social impact investing was really in its early days. So social impact investors are venture capitalists who believe that there are economically viable solutions to poverty, but that they require more patient capital and maybe more adventurous capital. So it, the idea here is not to, not to solve these problems through charity, which is expendable and unpredictable um, and very hard to take to scale, right? We've got 3 billion people who need access to energy, very hard to solve a problem that large philanthropically. We built a business model that assumed that we could sell these products for the avoided fuel costs for the customer, right? So if we cut their fuel consumption in half, they would pay for this. We've learned a huge amount about how to sell to low-income consumers since then that is much more nuanced and a bit more complicated, but, but that was the basic premise. In order to make that work, we also had to sell products at very low margins because these are poor people um, and they just yeah. can't afford very expensive products. And so, you know, if you take together the uncertainty of an emerging market with the low margin nature, you need a lot of time to bring that to a big enough scale that it can sustain the business. And that's where kind of our first passion in camping came back in, which is, well, if we're developing the same technology that can work for a farmer in Africa or a camper, why don't we do both? And let's use the dollars that come from our campers not to subsidize the product that goes to the African farmer, but rather to subsidize the company until it can get to a scale that it can 
repeatedly, sustainably, economically deliver this over and over again. And we called that model parallel innovation. And coincidentally, that was also helpful for venture capitalists, right? They were able to see a little bit of de-risking in their investment because of the recreation market, while also seeing a massive opportunity, if we get this right, serving 3 billion people across you know, developing countries. And so I think that hybrid has been especially, you know, has been really powerful for us. And and I'll say even right now, as we enter a major economic downturn, the stability of having two markets is incredibly valuable um, because, man, we know that when hardship hits, it hits poor people the hardest. And yeah. the ability to have that stability as an organization to continue to serve this customer because we are diversified in our revenue is, I don't know that we would have ever predicted what's going on right now, but um, man, are we happy to have that diversification and stability at a time like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was speaking with one of your representatives before this, they were saying that you actually have a third market that you sell into as well, which is carbon offsets. Um, it's very interesting, right? Because if you sort of looked at BioLite's values over here, we believe in, you know, delivering health benefits and economic benefits for our consumers and environmental benefits for the world. Right now, the only thing that we get paid for is delivering economic benefit to our customer, right? And we're not getting paid for any health benefit that our products may or, you know, may have. And we're not getting paid for the environmental benefits. And yet clearly there is um, value to cutting down half as many trees as would have been cut down if you didn't use one of our stoves or not burning kerosene, right? And moving to solar energy. But the world does have a mechanism for valuing carbon reductions. Um, unfortunately, our country doesn't su subscribe to those mechanisms at a national level. And I'll spare you guys the, the, the politics of it. But, mm -hmm. um, but the world at large does, and that's called a carbon credit. And basically what a carbon credit is, is a way to measure either a ton of CO2 that is sucked out of the atmosphere, which is called carbon sequestration and capture, or a ton of carbon that was going to be emitted that you prevented from being emitted, right? And we call those avoided tons of carbon. And so what BioLite does is we help create avoided tons of carbon because if a customer would have used 10 kilograms of, of wood or charcoal in a day and now they only use five, well, we saved five kilograms of charcoal from being burned into the atmosphere. And then we go and we're able to sell those certified emissions to either corporations who want to voluntarily reduce their carbon footprint. So we've worked extensively with um, Autodesk, the software manufacturer who has purchased carbon credits from us. Um, we've worked with the government of Norway. We're now, um, you know, we, we've worked with a wide range of both municipal and corporate customers to sell those carbon credits. And what we're able to do is if we can sell $10 worth of carbon credits when we sell a stove, we can take that $10 and make the stove $10 cheaper, which means we can now reach a customer who would have otherwise been, um, wouldn't have had the, the cash to buy our product. Right. Um, and so what it does is it allows us to reach lower income consumers with our products and deliver more health, economic, and environmental benefit by pricing the environmental component. Yeah, that's fascinating. We don't, we're not going to have time right now to talk about the other thing that you're doing, which is the climate neutral project, which digs into this entirely. But I, I personally have a deep conviction that if we figure out how to price carbon and then infuse that into our standing economic models, it could unlock a tremendous amount of ingenuity and new ways to think about 
capital, new ways to think about how you can make something profitable by doing exactly what you're talking about, by, yep. by yep. benefiting us entirely and, and unlocking this potential value in these, these products that are going to be able to do that. Yeah, we need to create economic incentive for companies to develop the technologies that will build our, our sustainable future. And right now, when you can't put a price on carbon pollution, people can't build businesses that can service that because there's just no way to fund them. How do you pay right. the engineers to work on it? And right. so I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We need a price on carbon and, and voluntary carbon credit purchasing today is a very small market, but at least it's some functioning market that allows us to help accelerate the, the carbon avoidance work that we do um, in a way that is economically sustainable. Right. But if we're depending on our communal altruism for the survival of our species, I mean, <laughs> shit, I'm not a gambling man, but that's a, that's a risky bet for anyone to make. Uh, and if you look at the size of the carbon markets to date and the price of carbon credits, yeah, it does not suggest that that's, that's going to be the answer. Right. So that, we, that we're going to need to turn this into mandatory policy rather than voluntary action. Yeah, so do you absolutely. just look at the way um, the government handles certain things now and just shake your head or like, how, how do you feel when you see the, the apathy on, on the part of uh, the current administration? That can be a little well, bit of a loaded would, question. You know, I, I, look, take, I would take, take, take that. Take I feel that like as this is will. like my Anthony Fauci moment here. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, look, I would say this. I think we have learned a lot in the last four weeks about listening to the warnings that scientists tell us because they're probably worth listening to. And mm -hmm. I think that it's very. Climate change is a very abstract concept. It's really hard when you're looking at urgent economic issues like, you know, putting automobile factories to work. It's, it's easy to see how the urgent takes precedent over the important. And I think particularly when there is not the emphasis put on predictive science that there needs to be, it's easy to stay in that mode. And I really am hopeful that one of the byproducts of what we're going through with coronavirus is going to be a little bit more public belief and public demand that we respond to the signals from science uh, because you can ignore them for a while and you can get lucky from time to time, but you can't ignore them forever and get lucky all the time. And now we're starting to see some of the consequences of, of keeping our ears closed to those signals. Yeah. Well, and maybe, maybe this crisis will also help remind us. And I, I know I certainly feel this way having now spent a month at home with my wife and son, what, what really matters, right? Like I don't need that many of those other things. Like I need a roof over my head and we need some food and we need some quality time together. And maybe some of the other things that felt so urgent might matter a little bit less coming out of this um, and create some space for investing in our futures. Yeah, one can only hope that we come out of this a more, um, a more reflective, a little bit more thoughtful people. We can learn to listen a little bit better. Yeah. Um, all right. So with that, we always end with these two questions for everyone. Tony, will you take us into number one? All right. Here we go. You might remember late 80s, early 90s cartoon called Captain Planet. With each guest, and this is my favorite part of the show, we ask them what, they, what element they identify with. Wind, earth, fire, 
water, and heart. Those are the five power rings. Which one would be emblematic of you and what you represent? Uh, I feel like I should say fire, considering it's so much of what we do, but I think I would say heart because it's what can help guide us to the smart decisions we need. I like it. Another heart, Lex. Yeah, you're, you're racking up the hearts these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. The, the last question, what can we do to help? What can us and the audience that we have, how can we help support the mission, support the cause? Where can we find your products? Also, is an obvious question. Um, sure. But more so than that, like, are there things that you would say, pay attention to this, listen to, you know, where, where can you direct us? Well, first of all, I think you guys are already helping us spread the word. Um, you know, we obviously love it when people buy our products. It's what helps us sustain our mission. Um, and so you can buy those at biolightenergy.com or on Amazon. And um, so obviously we, we certainly appreciate any of the support that we get from listeners. But I think, you know, we, we do a lot of publishing and talking about the importance of energy and how energy is both you know, what we see as a fundamental human right, and it also sits at the nexus of our climate future. Um, and so helping people understand that clean energy is an imperative, it's a, it's a global issue, and that the technologies really exist to sustain an incredibly rich quality of life based on renewables and not fossil fuels. And we hope that every time someone touches one of our products or understands how we're changing behaviors, in, you know, in Africa, that that makes that belief in that future a little bit more real. Um, and so we just really would encourage folks to follow us on our journey and, and, and learn with us as we, as we understand what building that new future would look like. Well, there you have it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you guys. Take care, Jonathan. Okay. Bye guys. Bye. All right, that was our conversation with Jonathan Cedar, the founder and CEO of BioLite. This week, we would love to dedicate the episode to all of the environmentalists, activists, tree-hugging, wonderful humans who have laid the groundwork for all of the sustainability efforts that happened from 1970 now. It's the last 50 years of legacy that we're working off of. Yes, and it's very easy to forget that this is Earth Week because there's so much craziness going on. The news cycle is insane. And our focus may be on things like the pandemic and COVID-19, et cetera. And without diminishing the gravity of that, it's important to know that eventually we're gonna get through it and we're gonna get a handle on it. And with that, that will end, but environmentalism and sustainability efforts will continue thanks to folks like Jonathan who won't quit. They're going to keep going and make the planet a better place. And remember to tune back in on Wednesday tomorrow for our special Earth Day bonus episode with the director of the Sierra Club's Outdoor for All initiative. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for that. And be sure to follow us on social media. Uh, we always end with that little plug there, but we want you to be our audience we want to continue to build our audience so please click subscribe follow us on facebook like us on instagram and keep being the lovely audience that you are absolutely all right guys cheers have a good one take care have a great week